Good morning. Thanks, Vinny and Mary. That was wonderful. Um, just uh, house stuff, doing some announcements before we get started. Uh, you should have received an email uh, either through MailChimp or through our church management software to get, uh, and, and in that email, I'm sorry, uh, there was a link to sur- a survey uh, concerning our uh, regathering, and I, I'd love to see everybody take that uh, and get that filled out for us. If you've already taken it, thank you. Um, you know, we're having discussions even today, right after the service, the pastoral council is meeting to discuss, you know, how we're going to manage reopening the church and gathering again together. I do know that one thing that we can say right now is that community groups are allowed to meet together. Uh, we stress social distancing and that and all that stuff, but they will still have a zoom link going, uh, for uh, anybody that doesn't is uncomfortable to attend, but talk to your community group leader about that. It, you know, each group is a little bit different and may uh, manage that differently. So, uh, but we're going to make some more decisions today. So we urge you to be praying for the council as we try to uh, talk this through. It's not an easy conversation. Believe me, it, it sounds so simple, like unlock the door, go in. It's not that simple. So uh, pray for us as we navigate that. Uh, I know you might be tired of hearing this, but I, I, we need to make this announcement over and over again so everybody hears it. We are moving from our giving portal, which was Simple Give, to our new uh, Breeze uh, giving portal on the website. So if you've been using Simple Give as a reoccurring tithe or giving, uh, how you give your, your tithe, uh, please go in there, follow the directions on the page, and uh, Stop that in Simple Give and transfer it over to the, the Breeze um, app application. It would be helpful to us. Uh, we're eventually going to phase out Simple Give. There's also a new text to give option, which there are directions in there for that. You can give by Venmo as well, or um, you can just mail the church check, 1116 uh, Lancaster Avenue in Bryn Mawr, 19010, and I'll get that check deposited for you. Um, parents, remember Sundays, uh, every Wednesday uh, before the the following Sunday, uh, our curriculum is uh, updated on the website. The third banner at the top of the website, just click on that, and it'll give you everything you need for your kids. Kim also sends out a few things on Saturdays before church for you and stuff like that. Um, VBS will be coming up. We're, we've decided at this point to do that virtually, and we'll give you some information on that soon. Uh, lastly, I just want to say, a uh, couple things. Spiritual mentors, uh, you can contact uh, them by spiritualmentors at 68.org. Great way. We have 10 people that have done a lot of training to be ready to help people move along in their spiritual formation. If you need somebody to sort of just listen to what's going on in your life and give you some some insight into where they see the Holy Spirit moving in your life and maybe some new practices to help you uh, grow deeper in your faith. It's really a good thing. So uh, email them. Rob Schaefer gets that email and he will connect you to the right person. You know, if you're a woman, he'll connect you to the one, one of the women on the spiritual mentors team and uh, a guy with a, a guy and all that kind of stuff. So that's available. Also, if you need prayer, uh, email prayer at 68.org and Rachel will get you uh, hooked up with that. Um, we, we would love to be praying for you during this time. Um, this morning, you know, it has been a long, long week. First of all, I want to say, Welcome, everybody, and especially if you're new and you've, you're logging in, we are so glad to have you this morning 
watching with us. And we hope one day to see you in our building, uh, which we will, and, and we'll be in there. And we'd love for it to have you come there as well. But I want to say that uh, it's been a long few weeks, and, and um, the, the pastoral council has been sitting and talking and praying this through and thinking through, the, through all this stuff. And we've kind of come up with some things that we want to say this morning. And I just want to say um, those things before we get started into the sermon. I want to urge us to continue to pray for our country right now in light of these recent events. In the, in the spirit of the gospel, uh, we as a church embrace all people. Uh, we are pained at injustice. We long for the resolution that the gospel has power to bring, uh, including racial reconciliation, right? Um, we realize that human law is good, but it is limited. But we know that Jesus can convict and change hearts. And uh, even that of the racist, you know, that person that is blind to their hurtful attitudes and, and actions. And so um, we know human law is necessary and good and that it restrains evil. So let's pray that justice is pursued swiftly without malice and hatred, but for the sake of equity and impartiality and for the betterment of society. Um, you know, we know that swift action would certainly help to assuage past hurt and to begin that long road of uh, rebuilding trust for our black and brown communities who have lost trust in our system for, you know, very obvious reason. And, you know, we can do better. And it always begins right here in our own hearts. You know that. And I know that, right? You know, in the words of my own brother-in-law, Dr. Steady Hatukale Mono, I love that name, uh, wonderful African-American man and president of SUNY Schenectady in New York, who in addressing his college this week, he said this. He said many things, but I took out a little chunk. He said, in the face of all this, let us collectively show our resolve and strength to shine a light on injustice and to spread me- the message of, uh, of unity and peace. In the words of doc- Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. We need to listen to those who are crying out for equality and fairness. We need to raise one another up and look out for one another. And that's an appropriate message right now since MLK, you know, operating out of the values of the gospel, knew that the liberation of the oppressed was also a liberation of the oppressor from the sin of racism. And that is the true march to peace and equality that we need, given that we don't just want a restraint of evil you know, evil behavior, but we, we want, you know, that'll re, just resurface over and over again. But we want, as Christians, we want a conviction of sin in our hearts, a joyous conviction of sin, a, you know, a turning away from those attitudes. We long for people to know Jesus and to operate out of his love and his value for all peoples. You know, Micah 6.8, the verse that our church is named after says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, you know, our church is composed of all kinds of political stances and voices. I've heard them. I've seen them. uh, I've talked to you guys. I know them. And as your pastor, I'd say that although we do very well in this area of loving each other, we will always have to work uh, uh, hard to do, you know, to love each other well over time, right? So let's remember our sermon from John 8 just a few weeks back where the religious guys intended to stone a woman for adultery and Jesus instructs those without sin to cast that first stone. And as you remember, no one could throw the stone. 
because they were all guilty of sin, right? And, and, and he sends her off, the woman off, forgiven. And that same conviction of our own needy hearts before God, let's be humble and thoughtful as we walk through this and talk through this together. You know, how do we see Jesus in this situation? Remember in John 11, he wept for a broken world, right? He weeps for the oppressed, engulfed in anguish and despair, as well as for the oppressor sort of buried in their hatred and their ignorance, for those who have made their politics their idol, and for those whose hearts are just too hardened to even care anymore. And that's the Jesus that we know and serve with countless examples of his compassion for the sick, the poor, the grieving, and the lost. You know, Jesus specifically turned his attention to those in need time and time again throughout the scriptures. And Jesus loves all equally, right? But Jesus gave special attention to those in need. So as the church, we reflect Christ when we weep with those who weep, Romans chapter 12, 15, and we bear with each other's burdens along the way, right? Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. So, you know, in that email you should, you should have uh, received yesterday, um, uh, there's a directional link in there for a prayer of lament. Thanks to Lindley, she looked this up and wrote that little piece of that. And I urge you to look at that and practice it in the coming days, and I think that will help. Amen. I, amen. So I, if, you, if you have struggles right now, you'd like to talk more about this stuff, I would, I'm right here. I would love to receive that. I would ro- love to hear from you, uh, visit with you, or just hear from you via email. We're going to start out with a little video clip this morning. I think Jordan's going to put up for us. Is. The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. offering is the truth, nothing more.
<laughs> Isn't that a great movie? I you know I feel kind of old and I know how long it's been out, but uh, I got to rewatch that. It's just the whole the whole thing is pretty cool. If you haven't been with us, we are in the Book of John, uh, the you know one of the Gospels. And if you want, if you have a Bible and you can open open up to John chapter 18, that would be great. You could read along with me. But in chapter 18, John paints this portrait of Jesus as truth. Right, And just before this, if you remember, Judas leads the authorities to arrest Jesus, and Peter denies him three times as Jesus is questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest, which brings him now to being led before Pilate. Um, so John chapter 18, if you don't have a Bible, you can just listen, I'll read it. But John chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 28 and read through 38. Uh, by the way, this is a great sermon. I not that I wrote it, I'm not saying that, but I just love this. I, I am excited to preach this today. And I had, Kim and I went backpacking uh, in Northern Maryland this week and uh, had this long discussion with a guy that we camped with. We just met him on the trail, camped the night, and uh, had this very discussion about these issues. So I'm really excited. So uh, John chapter 18 started in verse 28. It says, then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews didn't enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat uh, the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you, right? So they're not really giving that answer, right? Verse 31, Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. Uh, This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Right? And so verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this very reason I was born, and for this very reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asks, right? With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Great passage. Uh, There's an old poem written by, if I say his name correctly, John Godfrey Sachs. His last name was S-A-X-E. Died in 1887. Uh, And I'm a terrible poetry reader, so bear with me as I read this. But it says this. It was six men of Indostan to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous, uh, what most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said even the blind, blindest man, blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth, no sooner had begun about the, the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And I'm going to leave the end of that poem for later and you'll see why. But let me start out by saying that my wife, uh, for my wife, the best season of the year is spring. She just loves spring, the flowers and the sun and everything. But in her opinion, the best season of the year is spring. And that's true for her, but it may not be true for the guy who, sit, who uh, skis or snowboards, right? He might like winter best, right? For me, Tom Waits is absolutely the best musician that was ever born. But maybe for my son Tanner, it might be Drake. I'm not really sure. I didn't ask him, but could be Drake, right? And those would be relative truth statements, relative truth statements, relative truth based on preference or opinion. Yet in reference to things that are actually factual, which are true to everybody all the time, we come into the realm of objective truth statements, such as Rob Schaefer is a man. If you've ever met Rob Schaefer, there's no denying he's a man, right? Or Jason has dreadlocks. I, I have dreadlocks. It's a simple fact. I have dreadlocks. You know, that's, fa that's a fact not based on preference or opinion. Now, if you said Jason has wonderfully glorious dreadlocks, you're stepping into the realm of relative truth because somebody else might say Jason has nasty old dreadlocks, right? But, you know, Pilate asks, what is truth? What is truth? Right? And that's a philosopher's dream question right there. And it's also a great question in today's world as we watch the news going on about us, right? But the question I want you to think about and wrestle with today is, can we have objective truth as it pertains to God? Is, is there anything solid about the personhood or the character of God, who God is and what God is, that we can hang our hat on with all confidence? You know, some think not. You know, some think like that poem that we're all blind men groping at an elephant that we don't even really see anything or understand anything. And, you know, truth about God often is what many sense or feel to be true about God. And that's the exact conversation I had with my camping friend this weekend while I was backpacking. You know, that you feel something to be true, and then you form a belief around that feeling to make it a relative truth for you, but not for other, Right. And we may pick and choose from various religious thoughts out there to form our own image of God that we think or feel to be true. And if we're honest, that is only a relative truth based on preference or opinion. It's not based on God's revelation to us. That's a difference, right? When God reveals himself to us, that's, that's a big deal. Although, it, you know, our opinions, you know, may hold little bits and pieces of truth, but it's not the whole orb of it, right? And in the end, we create an, an idea of God instead of allowing God to reveal himself to us. See, the fear is that when we allow God to reveal himself to us, 
what if he reveals something about himself which I don't like or I don't prefer? And that is why the scripture is so vital to the Christian life. Because studying it, the true picture of God emerges as he's revealed himself in the scriptures and as he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So, is relative truth bad? You know, some might think so. You know, relativism has been considered by many to be the enemy of the church in a postmodern world. But we just saw how in certain things, we all have different answers, and it's not necessarily bad, you know, neither here nor there, right? Now, relative truth can be damaging, even murderous. Like if you and I were standing in, in a riot that's going on, you know, about all of these issues that are surrounding us now, and I pointed at you and screamed, there's a racist, that could endanger your life. That, that's damaging and murderous. But oftentimes, relative truth is innocuous, right? You know, what's true to one person about, being, uh, about something isn't really true to another. It's relative, right? But truth's only relative when it's based on things that we can have preference in or opinion on. Objective truth doesn't change. It is true for everyone all the time. So I can say my favorite color is orange, right? And I think it's best. And that might be true for me. It was, it's my relative truth. But I can't say that my shirt is blue when my shirt is actually red, you know, right? Because the objective truth is my shirt is red. If this is called red, I'm not really sure. Um, but to say, to say this is blue, I'd, I'd either be a liar or I'd be insane or I'd be very, very colorblind, right? You know, in reference to God's revealing himself, he is an objective reality. There is some solidity about what we know about God, right? And that reality or truth is objective to who God is. Therefore, we can't point, you know, out there to something else because only that we prefer it and, you know, prefer it more and say, well, that's God. When he actually reveals himself in a different and very definitive way. So think about it this way. I couldn't point to Dave Christie, if you know Dave Christie from our church, and say, that's Mike Thomas, if you also know Mike Thomas from our church. Since Mike Thomas's personhood is an objective truth, as is Dave Christie's, right? There's only one Mike Thomas, and the world can only handle one Mike Thomas anyway, because unique perfection like Mike Thomas, you know, can't be duplicated, right? You'll notice I just stepped into relative truth there, um, but I like Mike, so I'll say that. But the trap that Christians are caught in is that we make claims of objective truth about things which are actually relative or which we don't even have all the complete facts on yet. And so we hang our hats on the wrong things. And things that we believe to be unchanging objective truths only to find out that they are actually untrue. Christians have held so strongly to certain things that it's made the church look foolish at times, right? You know, at one time, everyone believed the world was flat, yet that assumption, based on our limited observance of nature, was proven to be untrue. Now, I realize that there are some people out there, the flat earth society and all that stuff, don't, don't see how they get it. But anyway, it, it's, it was found to be untrue. You know, everyone believed uh, that. It, it, it just it couldn't make it true just by believing it. The church once believed that the earth was the center of the universe based on 
you know, some poetic language in the Hebrew scriptures would speak of the sun and the moon revolving around the earth. It was poetic language, never meant to be scientifically directive. You know, we would never hold that standard to a songwriter when he says, the sun rises on your smile, right? Like we would, like, that's not a scientific statement and neither is the poetic language that we find sometimes in scripture. It's never meant to be scientifically directive in those ways. If you remember and you know history, Galileo proved the heliocentric model to be true, overturning the long-held Ptolemaic model that the earth was the center. And, and when he proved that, he was, he was condemned as a heretic for doing so, although they released that charge later on. You know, everyone was convinced at that time that planets revolved around the earth, but they didn't. And Galileo proved they revolve around the sun. And although many believed the former, it was still untrue. So how do you know objective truth when things we're so, you know, we're so sure of seem to change? That has undermined our confidence in the viability of truth. And we share Pilate's question, what is truth? Many of us ask that question. That's like the postmodern question, right? You know, only objective statements are true for everybody all the time. And some say there are many paths to God and they believe that to be a truth statement. Now, if you're referring to each person's unique experience in a journey that it takes to reach God, then yes, that statement can be true. You have your life's journey, I have mine, and God leads us through two separate lives. But God leads us to himself, which is an objective reality. But to say that all religions reveal the same God and they lead to a reconciling relationship with with God, that would be untrue, not only from a Christian perspective, but also a Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and all the perspectives of all religions out there. Because their images of God and their paths of salvation are very, very different. Yet all religions, all other religions, do share one common distinction, that they are all works-based, that you have to pursue God, God doesn't pursue you. That's a very important distinction between Christianity and all the rest, that that in all other religions, you have to work your way to God. You have to prove yourself. You have to live perfectly in some way to prove yourselves to God. But whereas Christianity alone says salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus, only in Christianity do we have a God that pursues us, that goes to the extent of coming into our reality, walking with us, loving us, caring for us, praying with us, you know, uh, dying on the cross, and, and rising from the grave and ascending on high and all that stuff, he's the only one that pursues us out of grace and wins us back and redeems our lives. That is a very big difference between Christianity and all other religious thought out there. You know, somebody might say, well, Jesus might be true for you, but I find truth in Islam, right? Well, if you believe that, then you mean to say that truth can be found in different places. But listen to this. People confuse pragmatism with truth or usefulness with verity, right? So usefulness and pragmatism are approaches which assess truth of meaning of theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical application. In other words, 
usefulness and pragmatism are based solely on experience, but experiences change. They're not objective. Whereas verity and truth are universally the same unchanging stuff for everybody, right? Yet if there's one God, if there is one God, sheer logic tells us one path has to be true and all others not, right? All others are false. They can't all be true since they make different claims about who God is and how you reach God or how you attain God or attain a relationship with God. What a person is really saying there is that they have found the religion of Islam to be useful and pragmatic to them. They like the image of God portrayed in it. However, for a Muslim to say you can find God through another religion, he has to deny the claims which Islam makes about itself to follow the five pillars of Islam, shahada, sholat, saum, jakat, and hajj. And if you don't follow those five uh, pillars, there's no chance for you to be saved. And even when you do them as best as you can, there is still no assurance of your salvation like we have in Christianity through Christ. In other words, if we make the claim that Islam and Christianity are both true ways to God, we are either grossly uneducated about Islam and or Christianity, or we aren't being honest and we are even possibly being manipulative of somebody else. Since both religions make very exclusive and different claims about who God is and how relationship is one with God, right? So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, which we've heard in in the past, that is a very objective truth statement. And by nature, that statement negates all other paths to God, just like the five pillars of Islam would or the message of Hinduism would or all other religious claims would. It's not that some truth, some truth with a small t can be found in other, can't be found in other religions. But the objective truth, the, the truth about who God is and how to have a relationship with him is only and ultimately found in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's why the writer of 1 John in verses 1 through 4 says this. We declared, he's talking about Jesus. He says, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed. It came to us, right? And we have seen it and testified to it and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. Revealed to us. That's different, right? So they met the objective truth of life in Christ, right? Which says to us that religion is not a matter of preference or opinion. It's allowing God to reveal himself to us as he actually is. As he actually is. So if I say Jesus is the truth, if I say that to you, that's not, I'm not saying that's just relevant to me. I'm saying it's also relevant to you. 
that I think it's that important that it's an objective truth that is relative to all of us in the world. It is a very bold claim. And it's why Jesus finds himself in this predicament because the Jews and the Romans, neither one wanted to hear that. They just didn't want to hear it. Now, is it a scientifically provable truth statement? No, and it never claimed to be, right? So get off that. We're not making that claim. It can be testified uh, testified to through the words and the life of Christ and through the witnesses that saw him and walked with him and touched him and you know, witnesses his, his rising from the dead. Just like knowing me, you would say, if you knew me and you, you walked around with me, talked with me, you would say, that is Jason. That's Jason Gwines. There is no other Jason Gwines in this world, right? It would attest to my, uh, my personhood, right? It's why we have been given the gift of faith. You know, I can sit here and I can argue the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses and fulfilled prophecy and so on and so forth. And although all of that should carry weight with you, without actually a divine movement of God's spirit, I can't make you believe it. I can't force you into the kingdom of God. It's not, that's not how it works. You know, in this story, we have three players. We have the Jewish crowd, we have Pilate, and we have Jesus. And firstly, the Jewish argue, the Jews argue from their perspective of truth. Secondly, Pilate asks the question, what is truth? And he doesn't wait for an answer because he, he doesn't believe there actually is one. And thirdly, Jesus, uh, who claims to be truth. That's our third party, right? And the Jewish crowd, firstly, twists or abandons their truth in this story. And then Pilate makes his own truth based on his own situational need, his relative truth. And Jesus, although in chains, seems to be the one in charge. Later on, when he's asked by Pilate, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or not? Jesus responds, you have no power except what is given you from above. In other words, I'm in charge, right? So the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate and not entering into the palace in order to remain ceremonially clean. And they hold on to this rule that they have created. Although there's nothing, uh, there's nothing in the Hebrew scriptures to support that. It comes out of the hedge of law that they've added to or they've placed around the scriptures. And so we realize that they have been very, very busy in adding their own relative truth to things. And in order for a criminal to be brought before Pilate, there had to be a charge, right? And there was none. They couldn't answer that question. So why did they bring Jesus to him? Well, we know quite simply, they just wanted him dead. But they didn't have the power to pass that sentence themselves. And so they bent the truth to be able to have a charge against him. And, they, and in not answering Pilate, they're actually lying. They were in an angry frenzy, and their feelings dictated their concept of truth. And later on in the story, when asked by Pilate, do you want me to release your king? They answered, only Caesar is our king. Something that they would never have said to be true at another time. It's only driven in this moment by their situation or relative desire to kill Jesus. So their truth had become pragmatic and relativistic, right? What served their desires in the moment, like many of us do, right? Truth was what they wanted it to be right then. Namely, they wanted Jesus dead, and they would compromise all belief and value to see that happen. And they claimed to be standing on objective truth, but their truth 
had become relative. They were no longer walking with or following God in this moment. You know, Pilate acted out of his own pragmatic or relativistic truth too. Between a rock and a hard place, you know, at that moment, the Jews didn't like him. He had already, they had already reported him twice to Tiberius for, the, for his insensitivity towards them. So a third report would have cost him his post or even his life. And so they had sort of a manipulative control over Pilate. And if he didn't follow their wishes, he was in peril, peril, you know, he like, he, something would happen to him. And if he did, you know, uh, if he, if he did follow their wishes, he was afraid that Jesus' followers might revolt against him. So he's between a rock and a hard place. Now, in light of that fact, Jesus is actually kind to Pilate in giving that strange answer. Remember, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to pre- prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. In other words... Uh, my followers don't fight like the Jews would. They're not going to pose any problem to you when you make your decision. It was Pilate's out, and he took the bait. Really interesting fact right there. So Pilate stands before Jesus, and he says, you're right. Uh, uh, and, and Jesus says, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this re- very reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to, to testify to the truth, Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, he says. In short, he's just repeating himself. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The only one. And Pilate's confused, weighing the situation. In the end, he decides truth based on what serves him best in that moment. Although the ultimate God of truth, the answer to his question, is staring right, sits standing right in front of him, staring him square in the face. And then we have Jesus, our third person in this, this whole thing. And, and the question is, what does truth cost, right? And we all know the answer to that question. And, and Jesus is the only one with integrity here. Standing on truth, facing certain death, eerily silent in some ways. He's predicted this. He, he answers plainly. He doesn't fight back. And he seems to be in total control of the situation. He's prayed this cup would pass, but he marches on in obedience, knowing that his choices will bring about his, both his torture and his death. You know, Pilate gives every opportunity for Jesus to be released, but, but the Jews are insistent. And he says, every year I release one prisoner to you. What would you have me do? Release the murderer, Barabbas, or Jesus? Wow. Isn't that crazy? And so they want Barabbas, which is clear foreshadowing of the gospel right here. Many believe that his name, his first name was actually Jesus as well, which would have been a derivation of Joshua, a very common name at the time, right? The name Barabbas is also interesting because it can literally mean son of the father. So it is highly possible that they chose to keep the prisoner, Jesus, son of the father, and to release a prisoner in his place by the name of Jesus, son of the father. That's really crazy. And after Jesus was scourged and brought back to them, you remember they put a crown of thorns on his head and they cloak him in purple like like a king. 
And when making a legal pronouncement, Pilate would have sat on his judgment seat. But some scholars believe, for various reasons behind the language in chapter 19, that Pilate actually took Jesus and sat him on the judgment seat. And he asked, and he stood to the side, and he said, do you want me to release your king? So here we have Jesus, scourged, sitting on the judgment seat with a crown and a robe. The king taking the place of the sinner Barabbas, becoming his replacement, placing his name on the worst of sinners and letting them go free. If that's not the gospel, I don't know what is, right? That's the difference between Christianity and everything else in the world. Jesus in control. Jesus as judge, Jesus as sacrifice, Jesus as replacement, Jesus as savior, Jesus as king, Jesus as ultimate objective, absolute truth, the image of the one true God. Jesus claims he is the truth, and all who know him or or who know truth, truth, listen to him. And when all other things fail us, when all other things prove to be relative or false or fall apart or changing and shifting, we can always grab hold of the objective truth that is the person of Jesus Christ. And so that leaves us with a question. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? And that's a relevant question, not just for somebody that's watching this and that hasn't really given their lives to him yet. That's an important one for you. But it's also relevant to me. What do I do with Jesus right now? Because he is an exclusive, objective reality with far-reaching implications in life, probably the biggest implications in life. What, what does it cost for you to make that claim that Jesus is God and you follow him and you want to tell other people about that? You know, Judas denied truth when he denied Jesus and handed him over for money. Isn't that a shame? Peter denied truth by denying Jesus three times because he didn't want to own his own cross at that moment. He was scared. Will I deny Jesus when I place popularity or money or power or comfort before him so that I don't have to face my cross? When my ethics become fluid and I'm double-minded before others based on acceptance or what will serve me in a certain situation, I deny truth and deny Jesus. When I want to define morality for myself, whatever feels good for myself, instead of deriving my morality from the scriptures, I deny truth and deny Jesus. If God is God, he must be allowed to be who he is as he reveals himself to us. He's not a puppet on a string. Maybe the first cross that we face is our own pride when we must give up what we think is think truth is and to start to actually listen to God's revelation to us in Jesus. You know, the poem I read is derived from an ancient Indian fable, and it communicates that none of us have a grasp on truth. One person sees things one way and another sees truth in a different way. And each of us are holding a part of the truth. Everyone's right in their own little way, given individual experience. And it's used by people to say that all religions are the same. We must have different ways of talking about and experiencing God. And they say, we're all feeling the same elephant, but we're describing him according to our own limited perceptions. You know, and it sounds so logical and it sounds so good. 
But man, it is so often wrong. The poem ends this way. It says, And so these men of Hindustan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. They were in the right in their relative truth, but they were in the wrong in the objective truth of what they were actually feeling, right? And then it says, so oft in theologic wars, the disputants I ween rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. Love that. You know, someone might read that poem and uh, and say all religions are merely an attempt by blind people to group, grope at, at truth, but they miss several important problems. Firstly, if the king were also blind, there'd be no one to lead them to the elephant. Secondly, why did the king only lead each man to one part of the elephant instead of allowing them to experience as much as they could to draw a conclusion? Thirdly, Even though some are born blind, most are born with sight. And sight is a gift of God who wants us to see and wants us to perceive and wants us to come to know him. Why would he leave us in the dark so much? Fourthly, rather than each of them having a portion of truth, they were all completely wrong. What they experienced was not a rope, a fan, a snake, or a wall. It was an elephant. It was an elephant. And fifthly, the elephant was still an elephant in spite of what their perceptions were. The elephant was unchanged by their imperfect understanding of what they were experiencing. Their misunderstanding came from their own blindness and not from the objective truth of what the elephant actually was. So in the Matrix, Neo felt the truth, you know, when he went to work or he went to church or he did this or did that. There was something off. He could feel it. But he had to swallow that red pill to come to actually actually come to face to faith with the objective truth of his reality. It was his choice: swallow the blue pill and continue to believe the lie, or swallow the red pill and and come to know objective truth. He had to wake up. He had to be reborn. Actually, if you remember the next scene, I think it is where he wakes up in this pod and he's actually birthed out of this pod into this real reality. Right. He realized all that he thought was real was actually false when he saw his true reality. He, he saw the matrix for, matrix for what it was, that he was a slave, that he was born into bondage, just like we are born into the bondage of sin. And he had to be reborn to be released. Sin. These false notions of reality that we make up to make ourselves feel better. Our matrix. We have to be woken up by Jesus to the objective truth that he is God, he alone is God, and he alone can save us to be released. We all got to be reborn. It's the truth. So how does a blind man recognize an elephant? Well, the king heals his blindness. The king wants his servant to see. The king leads him to touch the elephant, to see it, to to experience it in all of its objective reality. The king explains it to him, like God has explained himself in the scriptures. The elephant is revealed in Jesus. God heals our spiritual blindness, revealing himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The objective reality of the one and only true God come into the universe, come into our reality. 
Jesus opens our eyes and leads us to see and experience God the Father in this objective reality. The Word of God outlines for us exactly who God is and exactly how to reach Him as much as we need to know. He's gone to great pains to reveal Himself, even to the point of entering our reality as the person of Jesus Christ and suffering and dying and rising from the dead. So the question is, are we going to continue to grope around with closed eyes, blind eyes, or have they been opened to see Jesus? Do we piece together our own image you know, of preference and desire that makes us feel better? Will we make up truth to benefit us just as these people did in the story? Or will we willingly count the cost of following Jesus and go to the cross with him, even though it means a cross for us? You know, at the end of the day, Somebody can be relative uh, towards Jesus in preference. They can say, well, I like him or I don't like him. Great, more power to you. But what you cannot deny is what he puts forth as objective truth about himself. He doesn't give you that luxury of saying, I'm only one choice out of many. He is Lord. He is King. He is the truth, the way, and the life. And all who know truth Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. If you don't know that voice yet, I believe right now that he's calling you to it. And I would drop to my knees right now in your living room, wherever you are, and give your life to Christ. Even if you don't fully understand him yet, he is an objective reality. He has gone to great pains to communicate himself to to you. And maybe he's doing that right now through his Holy Spirit. And if you are walking with Jesus for years, This means we have a lifetime to experience more of who God is, to feel around that elephant, to read the scriptures, to pray, to have the Holy Spirit lead us in this. And I pray that we would do that even more and more. And we would not let the world define who our God is, but we would define that and that it would change us and change our world. Amen. Love you guys. Man, I love... I love preaching this stuff. Love you guys. I can't wait to be back in the room with you. Please pray for us. We're having a meeting at 11 o'clock to make some decisions. We'll communicate those things to you very clearly and very soon. Amen. God bless and have a great week. We're going to, I think, leave this up for about five minutes. So if you want to chat, go ahead and do so. God bless you guys. We'll see you soon.